Specialty Story, session number 161. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians, hearing their stories and their path to their specialty, which will hopefully help you and understand the journey that you want to take to the specialty of your choosing. This week, I have Dr. John Molinax, a complex general surgical oncologist. He's going to talk all about his specialty, how he got there, what he loves about it, what he doesn't like about it, and so much more. We start the conversation by talking about how Dr. Molinax first became interested in complex general surgical oncology. Yeah, so uh, as a as a surgery resident, general surgery resident, uh, my my first three years, I did a bunch of clinical outcomes research, and the the uh, mentor that I had at the time, uh, a lot of his uh, work was focused around patients with pancreatic adenocarcinoma and outcomes following uh, what's called a Whipple operation, which is a mm-hmm. A, a complex uh, resection for patients with uh, pancreatic cancer. And so um, we we did a whole bunch of work and wrote a few papers based on that. And and I found the, the, the field interesting because it involved other specialties. So as a general surgeon, one of the things that, that put me into general surgery was the fact that I could stay broad and have a have training that was not so focused. And surgical oncology in the same sense is broad in, in the sense that I worked very closely with medical oncologists and radiation oncologists um, to get optimal outcomes for the patient. So, you know, finding a field that allowed me to stay broad and not, not subspecialize, but at the same time, uh, you know, work with other folks in medicine, uh, was really exciting. And so that's kind of what led me down that path early on, I would say in my first and second year of residency. When you were going through the the medical school process and mm-hmm. kind of weeding out specialties, w- was there yeah. anything drawing your attention away from gen or from surgery rather, uh, as you were going through the process? No, I think, you know, when, when I talk to students about, about specialties and thinking about what you want to do, I kind of break it up into, into four quadrants, right? You either think about, do you like to be in the hospital or out of the hospital? And do you like procedures or do you not like procedures? And, and if, you, if you break things into quadrants like that, um, I knew that during my, my rotations as a medical student and, and my experience before medical school, but I really enjoyed being in the hospital more than in the outpatient clinic setting. And so um, that combined with my interest and in, in working with my hands and, and doing procedures, um, it really kind of led me to, as I said, general surgery. And general surgery is in many ways like internal medicine uh, in the fact that you can stay broad as a resident um, and your training is is, is open-ended and you're you're kind of not quite defining yourself yet. And I liked that. Um, and so that's kind of what led me to general surgery as a specialty. I had some, uh, you know, coming into medical school, I thought maybe orthopedics, but I learned pretty quickly in medical school that orthopedics uh, required me to specialize and focus a little too, a little earlier than I wanted to. Mm. So that's how I ended up in general surgery in the first place. Nice. I was going to say, don't, don't talk bad about my orthopedics. I... No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I think I, I, you know, ortho. Is, is is fantastic and and it what you realize though is is actually like many integrated residencies now you know vascular surgery mm-hmm. even CT surgery is becoming an integrated where you know after your fourth year of medical school you're you're committed down that path yeah 
Um, and and I think you know general surgery offers the opportunity to not quit, not commit quite so early. Things like transplant surgery, pediatrics, uh, these are things that you don't often get exposed to as a medical student, and so it's hard to know that that's not what you want to do. Yeah. Um, you know that early, and so that's where that's kind of what, what landed me into a general in a broad general surgery program. Nice. What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions that that medical students or even residents have around surgical oncology? Yeah, I think, you know, one of it it would probably or one of them would probably be the fact that, you know, all we do is operate, right? Uh, as a surgical oncologist, I think what what defines you apart from a general surgeon in the care of a cancer patient is that you have training in the non-surgical components of cancer care, right? So we know that outcomes for patients with with cancer uh, many times are not optimal with surgery alone. And so having a good understanding of when and how to incorporate, you know, chemotherapy and radiation therapy um, is crucial. Um, patients I care for with with soft tissue sarcoma absolutely need multidisciplinary care. And so if I if I didn't have the training I have in surgical oncology, I'd be more siloed in the care of my patients. Um, and so being able to integrate and understand and, and speak the language, for lack of a better term, um, uh, of those of my colleagues is, is, is really helpful. Um, and so I think that's probably the biggest one is, is the fact that you're not just uh, operating on these patients, but understanding when the operation needs to happen for them. Yeah, very interesting. What are, what are some of the biggest, uh, most important traits that a physician needs to have to be a good surgical oncologist? I mean, like any other uh, specialty, you've got to be able to work with others. <laughs> I think, you know, uh, medicine is a team sport, absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, optimal cancer care is absolutely a team sport as well. Um, and, and being able to converse openly with not only clinicians like medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, but also your pathologist and your radiologist. Um, you know, I operate on, as I said, patients with sarcoma, and, and these are complex tumors that, that arise in, in some complex anatomic constraints. And if I didn't have a great relationship with my radiologist or my pathologist after a, a biopsy demonstrates some, you know, non-diagnostic report, I think those are things that are absolutely important. So having those communication and, and collaborating skills um, are really absolutely crucial. I think you have to be uh, uh, willing to take some risks. As I said, you know, a lot of these these tumors that we approach surgically are are complex, and there's significant risk associated with the with the operation. and And being risk averse is probably uh, something that is is not uh, conducive to this. So I think you have to understand the risk. You have to be able to, you know, when you're consenting a patient, adequately describe that risk. And so um, I think understanding and accepting it uh, is is really key. What are some of the types of patients you, I know you mentioned a couple things, but what are some of the most common kind of bread and butter cases that a surgical Mm -hmm. oncologist would see? Yeah, great. So things like colon cancer and breast cancer are really probably the number one and number two diagnoses that that a complex general surgical oncologist would would, uh, see. And that's obviously based on the incidence of the disease. Uh, Folks with things like lung cancer, which is obviously another very common cancer diagnosis, are managed mostly by thoracic surgeons, which is a a different uh, training pathway. Uh, So colon and breast are really the number one and number two most common. Um, other other things that, that a surgical oncologist would see are things like uh, cutaneous or malignant melanoma, as I said, sarcoma. Um, these are things that are often referred out of a general surgery practice because they're more rare uh, and the management of them uh, is, is pretty rapidly changing. For And when you have a rare diagnosis and the, the management plan, you know, or uh, sorry, the data changes rapidly, that's something that oftentimes a general surgeon would refer to a surgical oncologist. But 
um, patients with breast and colon cancer are probably the two most common diagnoses. So as you are going through this this process, I know you said one of the biggest misconceptions is that people think, especially all surgeons, but especially mm -hmm. surgical oncologists, that all you do is operate. Mm -hmm. What percentage of your patients that you, you think you're seeing in a clinic on a daily basis, do you think you actually take to an operating room and, and do procedures on? A great question. I can give you, yeah, I'm right at 60%. And that's, um, that's pretty uh, standard for, for someone who focuses on, on, as I said, soft tissue sarcoma. If you're talking about something like breast cancer, um, for example, that's going to be a lot higher. That's going to be in the order of 90, 95% of patients. Um, so it kind of depends on the diagnoses uh, and the case mix that you're seeing in your clinic. Uh, but for me, it's about 60%. And so it, it's pretty it's pretty crucial to know who needs an operation and when they need that operation. Because as I tell my patients all the time, the timing of, of surgical intervention in the continuity of their treatment plan is really crucial. Because if you do it out of order, it can really set them back. For the the Sherlock Holmes of the group, the the, the students <laughs> who really love that investigation, how many of your patients are coming to you diagnosed and you're just the the quote unquote technician fixing them versus how, yeah. how much investigation are you doing? Yeah, good that's a good question. Um, actually, in, in my practice, very few. Um, a lot of my patients present with a lump or a mass that was incidentally discovered on either physical exam or imaging performed for another reason. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of my patients either come with no diagnosis or uh, a very vague diagnosis. Um, and so, uh, you know, ordering further imaging, biopsy, uh, et cetera, is, is really a crucial part of my job. In fact, most of the... I, I, tell the patients the first time I meet them in clinic, you know, we're not going to have an answer today about what we need to do. I can guarantee you there are going to be some tests or, or some other investigation that we need to do before we make a final treatment plan, which, you know, for a cancer patient is, is anxiety producing. But at the same time, I explain that if we don't get the answers correct up front, we can't go backwards. Once we, once we tip over one domino, um, we need to know what we're doing on the other side. And so, um, you know, ordering the, the appropriate imaging and, and biopsies um, are, are really crucial. And so, yeah, a lot of my job is, is that initial investigation. Nice. What does a typical day look like for you? So um, my my role here, uh, I'm actually uh, what on a, what's called a physician scientist track. So I have a, a laboratory where I, I do basic science research, and I also have a clinical practice. So uh, on my days when I am uh, you know seeing patients, I'm in clinic, um, and so I'm in and my clinic starts at 8 a.m. Uh, and goes throughout the day. I see usually new patients in the morning, and then established patients in the afternoon. And established patients are ones that I've operated on in the past, and then we're following them long-term for, for recurrence. Um, I see post-op patients kind of mixed in uh, throughout that day. When I'm in the operating room, uh, cases start at 7.15, and then I operate most of the day. Um, I usually have the, the, the average time of my cases is somewhere around four hours, three to four hours. Uh, so I'll usually do three or four cases a day. Um, and, it, you know, two big ones, two small ones, something like that. Uh, but I'm in the OR most of the day. And then when I'm in the lab, um, same thing. I usually kind of get in about eight. The graduate students get in a little later. <laughs> Postdocs maybe later than that. Uh, and and I'm usually in meetings or or reviewing data, setting up experimental plans with the team. And unless my Google search has failed me, you are not a PhD. And so just a another no. plug that quote unquote just MDs or just DOs can do as much or as little research as you want to do. So. 
Yeah, no, that's and I think in the field of surgical oncology, that is not, that is a feature that you will find more common. Um, most surgical oncology uh, surgical oncologists or folks that go through the fellowship will have done a, another two years of their general surgery residency on top of that in the lab. So I spent two years uh, at the NCI or National Cancer Institute. Um, strictly focused on basic uh, basic science research outside of my five years of general surgery, and that's that's a, a common uh, finding among surgical oncologists. So not not everyone certainly has a lab, um, but I think again in that the going back to being able to communicate and collaborate with you know a multidisciplinary healthcare team, you also have to be able to collaborate with the PhD folks, uh, and so um, I think that that's absolutely crucial in in a disease like like cancer where you know new discoveries every day are coming out. And if you're not up to speed on that, your, your patients aren't going to be uh, best suited. Yeah. What does call look like for you? I'm on call. My partner and I, uh, we take a week at a time. So I take a week, he takes a week. Um, and we here at the cancer here at Moffitt, uh, where I work, uh, we see general surgery consults for our patients within the sarcoma program, but also the extremity uh, and soft tissue infection consults. Um, there's a GI oncology team here. So they see uh, more of the, the bowel obstruction, cholecystitis, those sorts of consults. So we kind of split them up a little bit that way, but that's just the way our, our center is organized. Um, so he and I are on call a week at a time and, um, and we cover those consults. And then another aspect is, is the transfer. So a lot of patients that are initially seen at another hospital, um, they will refer those patients as an inpatient for a transfer. And so during that week, we also cover transfers from, uh, from throughout the state that, that transfer those patients for a higher level of care here at Moffitt. Are there a lot of times where you're called in to operate in the middle of the night or is it, is it pretty emergency free? Uh, you know, it, it is, it is not nearly as common as it was when I was a resident. Um, when I was at a more of a general hospital, I work at a cancer hospital. So, um, things are definitely more elective here, but that's not to say, uh, that, that there aren't emergencies that happen in the night and on the weekends. Um, you know, cancer patients certainly have all of the usual urgent, uh, general surgery concerns like diverticulitis and cholecystitis and, you know, infected, uh, you know, sebaceous cysts, things like that. Um, and then you have to put that on uh, in the background of folks that are getting systemic chemotherapy for other causes, right? So we have a huge bone marrow transplant program here at Moffitt. And those BMT patients have have the normal um, surgical, you know, emergencies that happen to anyone else, except, you know, they have, uh, you know, generally speaking, low platelets and low white count. And so those cases can be a little more complex. But those are the sort of things that we would see on call that would be more of an urgent um, in, intervention. That's an interesting point. Uh, there's a lot of medical subspecialty fields where that subspecialist kind of turns into the primary care doctor for those patients. Yeah. Now, for, for you as a uh, complex general surgical oncologist, do mm -hmm. you turn a little bit more into that patient's general surgeon when they have other complications that may be a little bit related but not specific to the cancer? Yes and no. Um, so, so when they're here and receiving therapy, you know, let's say it's a patient of mine that's moved on to radiation or moved on to chemotherapy, um, or or may have recurred with metastatic disease, then yes, absolutely. Um, most of our patients that we see here at Moffitt live a good distance away, mm -hmm. on the order of two, three, four hours. So in those cases, a lot of times we we do rely on their local uh, community physician and their community hospital for those. Um, you know, either either more urgent concerns where they can't travel four hours or um, in those cases where 
they may have a history of a cancer and there are no evidence of disease or what we call NED. Uh, and then, you know, four years later, they have, uh, say, cholecystitis, for example. That's something that I think, honestly, is best cared for at their local community hospital because they're close to their family, they're close to their support system, and having them drive four hours to have their gallbladder out when they could easily have it done 20 minutes from home doesn't make a lot of sense. But certainly while they're on active cancer therapy, yes, we, we are their, their general surgeon. And so I still get to practice some of that acute care surgery uh, that, that I learned in my training. Now, I think that surgeons have a general stereotype of not having the best work-life balance. What does that look like for you? <laughs> uh, you know, I think, uh, to be honest with you, in any specialty, you you are always a little bit at work. And I think the balance is, and I, I know you've probably uh, heard TED Talks on this or, or thought about this, but I think we need to think more about work-life integration than work-life yep. balance. Um as a physician, uh, you know, I you cannot turn it off. It just you can't, and you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Um. And and so I think that balance. Uh, thinking about oh, I come in my office at eight a.m. and turn the lights on, and that's when I'm a doctor. And then when I go home and turn the lights off, I'm not a doctor. That's just not. That's not our profession. That's not what yeah. we do. And and it shouldn't be. It really shouldn't be. And so I think how how do you integrate that? So things, for example, like uh, sometimes you know I may leave the office a little earlier because my I have kids that are that are in elementary school age and they go to bed early. So if I leave early, I can see them, but then I work when they go to bed. Um, and that's that's an example of integrating rather than staying in the office late and not seeing my kids, right? So um, I think you have to think of ways to integrate, get your work done, but still, uh, you know, see your family and 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 hold up those other responsibilities that we do have outside of medicine. Yeah. What does the path look like to become a complex general surgical oncologist? Yeah, sure. So um, obviously medical school, and then after medical school, um, a general surgery residency. So general surgery is a five-year residency. Um, and, and certainly one of the, you know, more common residency. So most programs, uh, most academic programs, and there's a lot of community general surgery programs now, um, that are, that are increasingly, uh, funded by, by, um, um, profit or for-profit hospital systems. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, general surgery residencies are, are really quite prevalent. Um, so completing a general surgery residency, um, as I said earlier, most folks that, that apply to a surgeonc, uh, fellowship will have done a, a two, a period of, uh, dedicated research time. In my case, it was, it was two years of bench research, but there are folks who will take two years and do, you know, some really fantastic outcomes, um, large database, uh, data analysis sort of fellowships. Um, but most people take some time away from their general surgery residency to get a some sort of a of a niche in terms of uh, a research effort. And then uh, afterwards, uh, a surgeon fellowship is two years. Um, and that two-year fellowship, at the end of two years, there's a board exam at the end of your general surgery um, residency, both a written and oral board. And at the end of your surgeon uh, fellowship, there's a written and oral board. So at the end, um, you're looking five years plus two years in the lab, plus another two years. So uh, you know, it's, it's about an, it's a nine year, uh, training endeavor. And then, and then you're double board certified, uh, in both of those specialties. How, how complicated, not complicated, how, how, um, competitive is, uh, are those subspecialties to match into? Yeah. Um, so right now, and it changes, there's actually, um, you know, the, the, the surgeon fellowships are, are increasing year to year. So it's, it's actually one of the more dynamic, uh, specialties in terms of, of programs being added, um, about 
five years ago, or maybe six years ago now, um, it became a separate boarded specialty, which then um, through the ACGME, now in order to sit for the boards, you have to complete an ACGME fellowship um, like any other residency. And so um, the, the fellowships are being added. There's now somewhere in the neighborhood of about 40 programs, and I think it's around 120 or 100 fellows a year that graduate. Um, and so for those uh, applicants, um, as I said, it's kind of, it's a pretty focused folks that apply to that. Um, it's not like a, a large applicant pool. Uh, it's it's a pretty small applicant pool of folks that are that are focused on that. So I don't have the exact numbers of the denominator, but um, it is one of the more competitive uh, fellowships in the sense that, as I said, a lot of folks will have done that time in research and, you know, have a fair number of publications good st- uh, good board scores. And then in, in surgery, it's it's the ABSITE or in-training exam, the American mm-hmm. Board of Surgery in-training exam. And so those ABSITE scores are are, are usually um, pretty crucial uh, to, to matching into a fellowship. <laughs> Surprise, the tests don't stop in medical school. <laughs> they do not. They don't stop forever. Ever. So they just change their names. <laughs> yes, yes, they do. And, and the amount that it costs to take them. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. So, um, you know, one thing that the American Board of Surgery did uh, a few years ago was they changed their MOC process where it used to be you would recertify every 10 years. Uh, mm-hmm. and now it's every two years. Um, so it's a more continuous, they call it continuous certification now, which um, it, so it's a shorter test, um, actually an open book, shorter test. And so it's less onerous, mm. which I think is a good, a good move in the right direction from, from the ABS. And, and I think other specialties will probably follow suit in that. Yeah, it's an interesting twist. I think it's hopefully better. Mm-hmm. It's less less intimidating, and there's yeah. less that you will lose knowledge of through that two year process. Yeah, no, for sure. I think you know medicine changes a lot in ten years, and so the old model of recertifying every ten years just doesn't seem quite as appropriate these days. So yeah, and it it, it goes against. I mean, some of the data that we have that people still practice the way they were trained. So mm-hmm. hopefully testing every two years and, and yeah. maintaining that certification will help. So it's good. I think that's, I think that's true. Yeah. yeah. You, now you specialize in sarcoma. Are the, the kind of subspecialties within complex general surgical oncology, are those more ECGME, more fellowship? Or are those kind of, you, you find what you like and you just kind of focus on that? Yeah. Usually the way that uh, you're, so, so there's, I guess you could think of it in terms of your training specialty, which for me is a surgical oncologist, but then your job specialty, you get hired mm-hmm. after you finish all of your training. At some point, you actually do get a job and you stop, <laughs> you stop training. And I know it, for some, some folks, it feels like it's going to be forever. But, and, and what happens is when, you, when folks are, are hiring or are looking for a new partner, they kind of have some area of the practice that, that needs to be developed. And so um, I think that's where most people, if you want to think of it as subspecialized, but more most people focus their practice is based on the, on the need of the group that they join. So mm-hmm. some group may be hiring someone who needs to really focus on the breast or someone may, they, you know, we have folks that are doing, uh, you know, hepatobiliary and we need someone who can focus on the colon cancer or rectal cancer. And so that's really where where you focus. And so I think that's the point that our fellows here that graduate when they're looking for jobs, everyone kind of has an interest, things that interest them and things that don't. And that's where, um, you know, that's that's kind of part of the job search is looking at what what disease and what, what, where are you going to focus in, in that job that you get. Nice. Very interesting. Okay. So for the osteopathic student or resident listening to this, uh-huh. wanting to get into surgical oncology, what what sorts of things do they have to do to overcome any sort of negative bias out there? Yeah, I don't, you know, I think the applying, as I said, 
certainly taking the two years um, to do some sort of dedicated research time. And it absolutely does not have to be pipetting in a hood by any means. It it just needs to define yourself as, as some early level of an expert in some niche. And I think that's really what's crucial for anyone. And I think um, no matter if it's allopathic or osteopathic, I think you know, graduating with from your from your general surgery residency, obviously, you know, doing well um, and and demonstrating that you have a handle on the on the basic principles of general surgery, but also the you know some demonstrable interest in in why why are you interested in surgical oncology? And I think that's where that that research that dedicated research time allows you to demonstrate to the to the fellowships why why you're why you're doing this fellowship mm-hmm. um and and saying hey listen you know i did this fantastic outcomes work on disparities in breast cancer for example and i really want to dedicate my practice to to you know getting rid of disparities and and focusing on that that that's a story that that tells the program director hey when this person finishes our fellowship they're going to go out there and make a difference and i think uh, as as program leadership that's what you're looking for when you're matching folks into a fellowship you want you want folks who are going to come to your training program, learn what you have to teach them, but then go out and be a leader themselves. And so if you in your application can demonstrate what about your CV and your training is going to make you a leader at some point, that that's really the most uh, enticing to, to a fellowship director. Yeah. For the future primary care docs listening to this, what do you wish they mm-hmm. knew to help their patients and help you do a, a better job with your patients? Uh, put simply, not all soft tissue bumps are a lipoma. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of patients that we see that, that, you know, were, were referred with a soft tissue lump in their thigh that someone thought was a lipoma and they took it out and lo and behold, it was a high grade sarcoma, in which mm-hmm. case, you know, that, that's, that's not good for them. Um, and so I think that having, um, having it on your radar in terms of your differential diagnosis for soft tissue masses. Um, certainly from a sarcoma standpoint, it is crucial. And having a low threshold to get that MRI or pause and get a biopsy before you send them to a general surgeon, those are things that that really can change the trajectory of a patient's outcome in a, in a very simple way. Um, so, you know, all of the things we learned in medical school, good physical exam skills, good history taking, um, these are things that, that as a primary care physician, you don't realize how you know, or maybe they do, I hope you do realize how, how much you impact the trajectory of that patient's outcome by that, by that very first clinic visit. And so having that on the radar, having, having the, your good uh, contact list of being able to call colleagues and friends and discuss a case with them and say, you know, I saw this 25 year old with a mass on their thigh, the weirdest thing, you know, you know, what, what do you think about this? Those are the kind of things and relationships in medicine that, that really do uh, impact the outcomes for your patients. And do you think it's it's interesting as as you were saying not not all bumps are lipomas. We have this social media world where we have lots of dermatologists out there excising oh, yeah. lipomas left and right. And I'm friends with some oh. of those people. Do you think that potentially is hurting patients because we see that and as future primary care docs we go, "Oh, it must be the same thing that I've seen a thousand times on on TikTok or Instagram." <laughs> yeah. You know, I think um I, in a word, yeah, because the the point is, look, soft tissue sarcomas are rare. There's no doubt about that, right? Yeah. For every, you know, uh, 50 lipomas, you're you're gonna have one sarcoma, but it's that one sarcoma patient that you're yeah. really gonna impact their outcome to a detrimental degree. And so, having, you know, we all know what a lipoma is, right? It's a soft 
small lesion, subcutaneous tissue, right? But if it's a firm fixed mass in the proximal thigh, it's probably not a lipoma, right? And Mm -hmm. so having good physical exam skills and really understanding that for your patient and not just, oh, we'll take it out and figure out what it is. The pathologist will tell us on the backside. That's not the approach that should be taken. Uh, And so, so I do think to some degree, um, you know, the, the, the TV shows and the, the social media, which get a lot of clicks or, or, you know, sell a lot of commercials between the breaks, they, they can hurt it. Um, and yeah. so we, we need to, as a profession, we need to be responsible about that. Right. I mean, I'm not, I'm a surgical oncologist. You're not going to see me injecting Botox in my clinic. Right. <laughs> um, that's just not appropriate. Right. And so, uh, I think that we need to respect that within our professional boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. What other specialists do you work the closest with? Yeah, so uh, definitely medical oncologists and radiation oncologists. The three of us are are really sort of the crux of the of the treatment plan for a cancer patient. Um, but outside of that, the pathologist and the radiologist are equally as crucial. If we don't get the right diagnosis, um, it doesn't matter how great of an operation I do or what kind of chemo uh, my medical oncologist colleague gives. If we don't get the right diagnosis through our pathologist, then then that's a real problem. And so um, those that's really the core team. Um, there's obviously you know ancillary folks like I'm a surgeon, right? So I need an anesthesiologist. Um, and and they we can't forget about them, right? Because the outcomes in my surgical patients um, are really improved for, with things like epidurals, for example, and open abdominal operations. And so mm-hmm. having a good anesthesiologist who's, who's good at regional anesthesia can really help in the post-operative setting, decreasing things like opioid prescriptions and, and such. So um, it, that's, you know, surgery is, as I said, medicine's a team sport, but surgery is absolutely a team sport. And so you have to you have to recognize what each member on the team brings and what their strengths are and look for those colleagues that can help you help you get the best outcomes for your patients. If you could go back and talk to your pre gen surge self, what would you what would you go mm-hmm. back and say? Uh, I think I would say you're on the right track. Stick with it. <laughs> um, you know, there certainly are times where you think, what, what what is the direction? What is my trajectory? Um, but, but I was, I was someone that was always kind of focused on the next two years, for example, um, and, and thinking about what am I going to be in two years? I think people that have a five or a 10 year plan, that's great. But in, in many times, you know, if you think 10 years ahead, sometimes you just get lost in all of the possibilities, but think constantly thinking ahead and, and not focusing on necessarily where you're at, but where you want to be um, is key. And so I kind of always was looking ahead. So when I was an intern, I was thinking about where am I going to go into the lab? When I was in the lab, I was thinking about what fellowship am I going to apply to? When I was a fellow, I was thinking, what kind of job am I going to, you know, you're kind of always in that next step. Yeah. And that's, um, that's really something that keeps you going and it keeps you focused on why you're doing what you're doing at that moment. It's, it's interesting as you say that I, I kind of warn a lot of people against that a little bit. You're focused. Um, I, I like I like that the way you focus on that was more on the excitement of what's to come, and not necessarily that's the goal. I, I think obviously this this whole journey is long as a pre med, as a medical student, uh-huh. etc. And so many people focus on once I'm a doctor. And then that whole process is miserable for them. (laughs) And we get a lot of burnout and and a lot of jaded physicians through the process, potentially because of that. Well, and I think, you know, uh, you know, partly uh, I'll be honest, you know, whenever I meet a third year med student or even a second year med student, I say, so, so what, especially what do you want to do? They're like, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm thinking, (laughs) 
well, how did you go to medical school and you don't even have any idea? Yeah. Like, at least give me three things, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but I do think that that is partly, that's on us as a profession because, you know, if you look at, um, for example, PA school, right? I mean, the amount of, of contact hours that are required for yeah. PA school are really amazing. And that's a good thing. And if you think about medicine, sure, we informally have requirements where, you know, we certainly want to see some shadowing or some experience, mm-hmm. but we don't have fixed requirements. And I think a lot of people do apply to medical school, um, not knowing exactly, you know, what's on the other side, or yeah. maybe it's family pressure or social pressure. But, yeah. you know, if if you can't, if you can, I always tell patients or uh, students this, if you can imagine yourself literally doing anything else, do it for <laughs> yep. sure. And, and I know that's so cliche, and you've probably had other people say that on uh-huh. here, but um, it absolutely true. is true. It is totally true. Yeah. A thousand percent. There's, there's too yeah. many, too many students that, as you mentioned, family pressure, or I like science yeah. and I want to help people. Therefore I should be a doctor yeah. because there's I'll make lots lot of money. Of <laughs> no. And you know, I mean, we need, you know, we need, we need really good hospital administrators who yeah. care about patients. We need really good uh, folks that are in the insurance industry that care about patients. I mean, there are a lot of ways in healthcare that have nothing to do with a bedside or a clinic visit yep. that we really have a deficiency in this country of, of, of some of those fields with that are patient focused. And we need people that are patient focused that may not have an MD or a DO after their name. Yeah. So, yeah. Thousand percent. What do you like the most about being a complex general surgical oncologist? Every day is different, easily. Uh, every patient is different. Every day is different. I, I get. I am one of those people that gets bored easily. I don't sit still, and uh, I, I don't sit behind a desk. I don't. Uh, I don't. I come in. I have a general sense of what my schedule is for the day, but but things are always on the move and dynamic, and that's that's something that keeps me interested every day. It's there's no. In some days, yes, it, it's a little too dynamic. But um, you know, the the fact that the fact that every time it's changing is something that excites me and, and keeps me coming to work every day. What do you like the least besides charting and insurance companies? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say I would put it different. I would just say that the non-patient focused items, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we all go into medicine because we want to help people. We want to take care of patients, and and I think. It's not that, right? We have to document. We have to chart. We have to do these things. We absolutely do. But when you're when you're charting is and and your medical records are not patient focused, that's what's frustrating, right? I I can write patient notes all day long and it's fine as long as I'm doing it with the intent of helping my colleagues understand why I'm taking care of this patient, which is the point of the medical record. But when I'm having to document a history and a physical based on, you know, some sort of coding requirements, that's where I draw the line. And so I want, you know, I think we do as, as physicians, we, we gripe about administrative burden, but it's not really the administrative burden. It's the administrative burden that isn't patient centered. And that's where I go back to earlier, you know, folks that we need folks in medicine that aren't in the, on the physician side. We need them on the administrative side, thinking about how do we make healthcare work for patients better, and not check boxes, and not um, you know uh, make sure that, that you know there's some spreadsheet that looks great. Those are those are unfortunately things in medicine now that that are that are really frustrating to physicians, and that's where the burnout comes from. Um, I'd rather work 12 hours taking care of patients than you know two hours of doing something that has nothing to do with patient care. And I think a lot of physicians feel the same way. Yeah. I think a lot of people know that that oncology is one of the fields where hopefully we're seeing a lot of change and in innovation and we have more patient-specific therapies coming from, from mm-hmm. targeting DNA specifically. What kind of 
big disruptions to surgical oncology do you think you'll see that that students should be aware of? Yeah, I mean, I, the biggest is is the whole sort of exploding field of immuno-oncology or immunotherapy, right? Historically, cancer was treated with surgery, chemo, or radiation, and that was it. And now, understanding how our immune system relates to, to cancer is, is the next 10 years is going to be unbelievable, especially in solid tumors. If you look at patients with lymphoma, I mean, there are absolute cures of patients with with high-grade lymphomas that two, three years ago were, were deadly, were, you know, not mm-hmm. cured. And that's amazing. And that's just entirely based on cell, cellular immunotherapy. And so I think the field of cellular immunotherapy in solid tumors is, I mean, we're right at the early stages of this. And I think that's one of the most exciting things to me, um, treating patients with, you know, by modifying their immune system to some degree. So that, that's, a, that's a big one. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a complex general surgical oncologist? I would. Yeah. I mean, for all the reasons I've listed, um, I can't, I can't really imagine doing, doing anything else. I, I love working with all of my colleagues in different specialties, but as I look at what they do in their day, that that's not, that's not what I want to do personally. And so I think that's what medicine takes. It takes people who really enjoy what they do, even though we're all different and we all have different interests, as long as, as you love what you do, uh, and we're on the same team, you know, that's great. If you think about I always think about it like a football team, right? I mean, you don't want Tom Brady running the ball. You want him throwing the ball. <laughs> and so you can't have a whole team of Tom Brady's. Uh, that isn't going to work. But every team needs one Tom Brady. And so um, understanding what your strengths are, I think that's really where a lot of a lot of folks maybe do have that burnout if they're if they get into some area where it's for reasons not not of their own volition that they ended up in that that specialty. That that's where you're gonna you're gonna burn out because you don't enjoy it. You kind of went into it for the wrong reason. So, as we wrap up here, any last words of wisdom for the medical student or resident listening to this now, having their interest peaked in in complex <laughs> general surgical oncology? No, I think you know. Keep your options open. Don't don't uh, pigeonhole yourself too early. Have a sense of of your strengths. Know what you like. Know what you're good at. Um, and then look for a specialty that fits those characteristics. That's how you're going to be happy. Um, you know, if if you love kids, but you absolutely can't handle it when kids are hurt, being a pediatrician is probably not not a good thing, right? Because you're going to be taking care of sick kids a lot. And so, um, understanding why you want to, you know, what what makes you happy, what drives you, what are you good at? That's how you're going to really pick that specialty that you're going to flourish in, and you're really going to help patients with. All right. There you have it. Again, Dr. John Molinax, Complex General Surgical Oncology, which is a mouthful, but I have hopefully perfected it at this point. I hope you enjoyed our episode today. If you want more information on the specialty of complex general surgical oncology, go check out absurgery.org. Again, that's absurgery.org for more information about complex general surgical oncology. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. 